Psalm 66 begins by saying, shout joyfully to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. And Father, you know that's the desire of our heart here this morning is to join with those, as Ted reminded us already, all over the world who hours and hours before us began waking up and gathering together, places that are big and places that are small, places that are magnificent and, Lord, others that uh, to our eyes are simple and, and crude, but they've gathered together in your name, the name of Jesus Christ. They've gathered around your word that, that lasts and endures, you've promised forever. They've gathered to sing your praise, to worship your name Father, to encourage one another all the more as we see the day of Christ's return drawing near. And Father, we desire the same thing here this morning. We celebrate that you're the awesome God. We celebrate that you're the good, good Father. We celebrate that you're the one who is perfect in all of your ways and, as we just sang, in all of your ways to us. Father, regardless of how they seem in the moment, you are good and perfect. And the way you deal with us, Father, because above all else, you call us your children. That when we repent of our sins, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, you say we're no longer strangers and aliens and and enemies of God, but we are sons and daughters and friends of God. Brothers and sisters with one another and the family of God through the grace of Jesus Christ. Father, we are thankful for that this morning. My prayer now as we turn to your word is that that truth, the truth of who we are in Christ, the truth of what you've done for us, will put our hearts at ease That'll cause our our ears to be open, Father, our eyes to see, not just words on the page in front of us, but to see with eyes of faith who Christ is, what he's like, what he's done, and how you want us to walk in this wicked and dying world. Fathers, we continue seeking you, asking you to teach us as the disciples once did. Lord, teach us to pray. Father, I pray the things that we're going to look at in your word this morning will do just that, will teach us the joy the thrill of conversing with Almighty God. Father, I pray that you'll cause us to hear not what I have to say, but what you have to say. That we will respond, Lord, as we heard last Sunday, that today if we hear your voice, we wouldn't harden our hearts. So, Father, guide us in truth as always, because your word is truth and there's nothing else like it. Father, guard us from error and confusion and misunderstanding. Father, some of us just came in with cloudy minds and hearts today. And, and Father, it would be easy to be confused or, or just indifferent to what you want to say. Father, we pray that in this moment you deliver us from anything we did bring with us that's going to keep us from hearing you, from worshiping you, from responding to the truth of your word. But above all, Lord, we pray that for the next few minutes, as always, we might see Jesus. May we see Jesus clearly this morning in the study of your word. May we see Jesus only this morning in the study of your word. And Father, let us leave rejoicing here in a little while because we get to sit at the feet of the one who loved us enough to lay his life down for us and then take it up again in victory. The name of Jesus is the one in which we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We'll take a minute and send the kids out for Children's Church. We've got boys and girls this morning. That's for our five-year-olds to our second graders. They can head out that back door. And I want you to turn in your Bible with me if you have one. And if you don't, you might want to get a hold of one. Because we're going to look at Psalm 103. Should go in your Bible to Psalm 103, which by my estimation, and that's all it is, is my estimation. You might agree, you might feel different. It's one of the very best in the book uh, in terms of telling us who God is and what he's like. 
uh, just in terms of, of really articulating uh, many of the things that we've just been singing about of, of God's character and his nature this morning. So Psalm 103 is where we're going to be. I want you to find your way there quickly because we're going to read it uh, to begin in its entirety For those of you who may be visiting today, maybe haven't been with us for a while, what we're doing in the Psalms is we're surveying the Psalms. Uh, Somebody asked me, I don't remember if they asked me last night, this morning or something, they said, are you teaching through all of the Psalms? I said, no, we'd be doing that forever. But we've picked a few, and we are using them. The reason we're looking at the Psalms is not just because they're pretty words and beautiful poetry, but because the Psalms have something to teach us about conversing with God. They have something to teach us about how to pray. And specifically, as it says on the screen behind me, about using the Psalms to converse with God in every season of life. And so we want to dig into the 103rd Psalm this morning and see what it has to say to us, what God has to say to us. Through the words of his servant David, we don't know necessarily when David wrote this, what season of life he may have been in, but that doesn't matter because it always applies. Beginning in verse 1, reading down through verse 22, here is what the Word of God says. David writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as east is from west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind is passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You know, sometimes when people are talking about prayer, maybe you've heard this, maybe you've even said this. If so, I'm not judging you with what I'm about to say. I'm just pointing something out. But sometimes when people, believers or maybe even not, are talking about prayer, they'll say something along the lines of the following. They say, you know, when I pray, I like to think of God as. When I pray, I like to imagine God as. As And sometimes what comes out of their mouth next is very biblical and accurate. But other times what comes out of their mouth next is some sort of, uh, some sort of combination, some sort of cocktail of Santa Claus and their favorite grandfather and, and Walt Disney all sort of wrapped up into one. Someone who loves just to give them present after present. Someone who would never, ever tell them no. Someone who's sole proprietor of the happiest place on earth who just exists 
to make me happy and fill my life with lots of stuff. Or at a more serious level, what we describe sometimes when we speak that way, when I pray, I like to think of God as, really isn't so much, again, at a more, a more serious vein, isn't so much uh, that sort of thing as it is a magnified projection of ourselves. That I like to think of God as being a whole lot like me, just a little bit bigger or a little bit better. That, that he's a God who likes everything that I like. He hates everything that I, that I hate. He happens to agree with me on most of life's big issues. That's the God I like to pray to, to talk to when I go to him in prayer. But either way, the outcome is the same. Which is this, that rather than praying to a God whom the Bible said created us in his image, we end up praying to a God we've created in ours. I've made him like me because that suits all my needs. But Psalm 103, the next, as I said a moment ago, in, in this series of studies, this series of psalms that are teaching us how to pray, how to converse with God in every season of life, Psalm 103, listen to me, will have none of it. Psalm 103 will not allow us to take that sort of attitude into prayer because what Psalm 103 expresses, and you probably already gathered this on the strength of one reading through it this morning, the message of Psalm 103 is to tell us that the one to whom we pray as believers in Jesus Christ is bigger, he is better, he is more awesome, he is more surprising, he is more fantastic and unbelievable than we could ever possibly imagine. Because for our purposes, as we're walking through this psalm, through this, this, these psalms, through this series together, for our purposes, as we're approaching Psalm 103 this morning, the question that it presents and resolves and helps us to work through is this. This is the question we're going to grapple with this morning. What is this God we pray to really like? What is this God we pray to as believers really like? Psalm 103 helps us with that question. Certainly it doesn't tell us everything we need to know or that we could know about the God to whom we pray, but it tells us much. And as far as I can tell, there are at least four things that we can't miss here this morning. Four things this psalm tells us. Some of what we've looked at through this series so far is how to pray, cues for prayer, how to pray in this season, how to pray in that situation. This is sort of uh, drawing the curtain back just a bit further and saying, now remember, as you're praying, when you're praying, here's who you're talking to. Here is the God, the one you are speaking with. This psalm tells us at least four essential things that we should know about him. The first of which is this, sort of touched on it already. It's fairly evident in the text, and it's probably the least surprising of the four I will give you but we're just going to take them in the order they come, that they come. The first thing this psalm tells us about the one to whom we pray is this, that he really is the one who more than meets all our needs. He is the God, he is the one who more than meets all of our needs. Look again with me in your Bible at verse 1, where it says, and probably you've heard these words many times before, bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, to bless the Lord simply means to praise him with everything you've got. We could get technical. We could give you all sorts of definitions. That wouldn't help. It simply means this. Worship and praise the God who is in heaven with everything you've got. Body, soul, spirit, inside and out. Praise him. First of all, verse 1 says, because of who he is. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. When you see the name of God mentioned in the Psalms and elsewhere, that is supposed to be that sort of the stamp, the seal that says everything about who he is and, and everything about what he's like. The name of God represents his character. 
And, and so we should simply bless him, as we've talked many times before when we've talked about worship and we've talked about prayer. We should just praise him and bless him with everything we've got simply because of who he is. Even if he never did one good thing for us, he'd still be worthy of our praise. That's what the Bible tells us. We should bless the Lord, first of all, for who he is. But then what the theme of this psalm really is in the next few verses, beginning in verse 2 down to about verse 6, is we should bless him as well. We should praise him with everything we've got for the wonderful and incredible things that he does. Just walk through again these next few verses with me. Verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Because here are some of the things, just some of the things that he does. He pardons all your iniquities. What's that mean? He forgives your sin. He takes the sin that separates us from him, and he, and he washes it away, the New Testament tells us, by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk more about that, a lot more about that in just a few minutes. Who forgives all your iniquities, verse 3. Who heals all your diseases. Now that is not a promise that every physical ailment is going to be healed to perfection, perhaps miraculously in this life, because they aren't. We know that's true. But it is a promise that either in this life, but most definitely in the life to come, everything that afflicts us here is going to be washed away, removed forever. We're going to be transformed. If he doesn't do it here, he may not. He may. He will do it for all of us when we get home to see Jesus. He forgives all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. He, verse 4, is the one who redeems your life from the pit. That's an expression, a reminder that he has, in fact, conquered death. God in heaven has conquered death and the penalty of eternal separation that comes with it. We will die physically. We will live forever with him. These bodies, again, will pass away. He'll give us eternal life in heaven Verse 4 goes on to say, he crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. He satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle, which is to tell us that he not only saves us from sin, he not only rescues us from death, but he also in the meantime provides us with an abundant life, with a relationship with him that starts now, it lasts forever. But Jesus, Jesus said it himself, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest in every season. He's with us. These are incredible promises. Each one's probably worthy of its own sermon or perhaps two. But you know what the bottom line message here really is? The bottom line message of the beginning of this psalm, at least in terms of, of what it means and what it tells us about the one we're praying to, is this. As a believer, listen to me. God is for you. He's not against you. It's saying God in heaven, as a believer in Jesus Christ, is for you. He is not against you. That everything you have, he's given to you. Every blessing in your life is a token, a demonstration of his love. And it's not just that he meets our needs. What the Bible's telling us is if we'll pay attention, he more than meets our needs. Because we don't deserve any of this stuff anyway. But he meets our needs. He more than meets our needs. He takes care of us. He walks with us every step of the way. And if there are ways where it seems like he's holding back. And to some of you here this morning, you say, yeah, it kind of feels like he's holding back. I'm not really feeling all this right now. Life is hard. What the Bible tells us in story, in teaching, by illustration, by example, what many others here in the room could tell you as well is if it feels like God's holding back now, it's just because he has a plan you can't see. He has a bigger plan, a greater plan, a wider, more magnificent plan, and, and we're just not operating on the same timetable. I know that doesn't necessarily help in the moment, but it's the truth of God's word. He knows what he's doing. He's a God who more than meets our needs. He's a personal God. He, he deals with us in personal and wonderful ways. 
And the reason that verse 2, look back up at verse 2, says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, is because what do we do? We forget this stuff all the time. I forget that the good things I have did come from him, and that the bad things that are going on, he's got that under control as well. And so the psalmist tells us right off the bat, don't forget who this God is. Don't forget the way he has dealt with you, the way he is dealing with you, the way he will deal with you. He's a good, good father. And he supplies and he meets all of our needs the first thing this psalm tells us is just that, that the one to whom we pray is in fact a God. We can take him our needs, we can take him our burdens, because he knows how to meet all of them. There's a second thing, though, this psalm tells us. And for my money, it may be the most significant one. In fact, I think it is the most significant one of the psalm. That doesn't mean you should tune out on the third and fourth. Keep listening, but this, I think, is the big one. I think it's what this psalm is all about. And it's this. The second thing this psalm tells us about the one to whom we pray is that first of all, he not only more than meets all of our needs, but secondly, he deals with us, listen, he deals with, deals with us according to the terms of grace. He deals with us, he relates to us on the terms according to his grace. You know, often in what is a, a well-meant, well-intended effort, as believers, to sort of express and to guard our humility and, and to acknowledge our, our frailty, that though we're believers, we're still frail. Many times you'll hear Christians say, again, sometimes we say this to one another, we'll describe ourselves, we'll identify ourselves, whether to fellow believers or maybe even to unbelievers, as, as just forgiven sinners. All I am is a, a forgiven sinner. I'm just, we've heard this said before, I'm just one beggar telling other beggars where they can find bread, Right? You've heard those sort of things before. As believers, we're just forgiven sinners. And I get that sentiment. I understand what we mean when we say things like that. However, I believe that that alone falls far, far short of who the Bible says we are once we've put our faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us so much more. Because if all, listen, if all we are, if we're just forgiven sinners, yes, forgiven, but still mostly just sinners, right? If all we are is just forgiven sinners, then it's just a short hop, a short leap. You don't have to work very hard to arrive at the conclusion that therefore the one who forgave us still has his doubts about us, Right? That the one to whom we pray is up in heaven and his arms are crossed and his lips are pursed and he's kind of watching us out of the corner of the eye because you're forgiven but you're still a sinner. And he's just waiting for our next failure, our next, our next, uh, our next falling short, the next disaster we create so he can sort of smack us down and knock us back in line and, and deal with us because of the ways we screw up over and over. And I'm not saying we all do this, I'm just saying it's easy to do. To say that, yeah, yeah, he loves us a whole lot. I'm not sure he likes us, though. And he's got his suspicions and his doubts. You know, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, I was a house painter. I was, long before I was ever here, my wife was in grad school. And I worked for a man who was a Christian. And, uh, and, and there were a lot of benefits to working uh, in, in that sort of a context. But, but he also had some struggles as well. And, and one of his struggles was in his role. You could just see it daily as a father because when we'd work in the summer months painting houses, he'd bring his, I think his son was 12 or 13 years old, he'd bring him to work with him. I don't know why, maybe it was just to get him out of his mom's hair. Maybe it was because he was trying to teach him something, I don't know. But the bottom line is they fought all day long. 
all day long. This father and son just back and forth, literally screaming and yelling and arguing and, and complaining. And one day it got so bad. It's really kind of the, the culmination of it. I remember it vividly. I was on one side of the house. I was painting a window. And on the other side of the house in the driveway, I could hear this father and this 12-year-old son just going at it, screaming and yelling louder and louder. And finally the son just said as loud as he could, tears running down his face, he, he, said, he said, Dad, all you ever do is find fault with me. And his father roared back at him twice as loud. He said, son, that's my job. And I thought, game over. Game over. I didn't know what to do. I should have done something, didn't know what to do. But I thought, that, there's the relationship in a nutshell. That's the way it worked for them. I'm your father. It's my job to find your faults, to point them out, and to scream at you till you get them straight. And, and I think a lot of Christians, maybe even despite themselves, sort of think of God the same way. He's just out to kind of keep his eye on me. He's kind of out to set me straight. That if I go astray, he's going to... And, and, and really, if that's what we think God is like, whoever wants to pray to a God like that? I don't even want to belong to a God like that. Who that's all he does is seek to crush me. Uh, but the funny thing is that, that, that while that sort of image, frankly, it preaches well. <laughs> does a good job of keeping the sheep on the straight and narrow, at least on the surface. Because man, if you get out of line, he's going to smack you down. But it's not at all what Psalm 103 says about God, is it? Were you paying attention to what it said? To how our Father in heaven deals with and relates to us? Listen again. Here's what I want you to do. I'm not going to make a lot of comments. I'm just going to read again verses 7 through 12. And I just want you to let the truth of these words, maybe you want to close your eyes, just wash over you. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, know that it is speaking about you. It says in verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses. In other words, David says, what I'm about to tell you goes back a long way. It's always been this way. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He won't always strive with us. He won't keep his anger forever. No, his anger was poured out on Christ at the cross. He has not, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Listen, I understand what people mean when they say, we're just forgiven sinners. I get it. I understand my point is simply when we stop there by focusing only on what Jesus takes away. Sort of like he forgave us up until we repented and then everything after that, we're kind of on our own to work it out. When we stop there, we fall woefully short, woefully short of who God says we are now. Frankly, I think when we stop there, we do violence to what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. We say it wasn't enough. That he poured out most of his wrath, but not all of it. He saved some for me. Listen, that's a lie Satan sells believers every day. 
Because the bottom line is that far from dealing with us from, from the perspective of how badly we're going to go astray next, what, what David is telling us here is what Paul restates, puts in his own words in 2 Corinthians 5 in the New Testament. They agree fully with one another when they say that when you put your faith in Jesus, you are a new creation in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You say, how's that possible? 2 Corinthians 5.21, because he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. What does that mean? It means if we can picture it this way, that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. When he looks at my heart, he sees the righteousness of Christ. When he looks at my life, when he looks at your life, he sees and he has the same affection that he has for his own son. I'm not making this up. It's what the Bible says. It's what it says about the one to whom we pray. And what a difference. Would you agree with me? What a difference that makes when you approach him in prayer to know that that's how he deals with you. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve. He has dealt with us on the terms of of his grace as accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ. He is the God, number one, who more than meets our needs. He is the God, number two, who deals with us according to grace. Third, verses 13 through 18 tell us. And this just sort of stuff just sort of builds from here. But again, just as important as well, the third thing I believe that this psalm tells us about the one to whom we pray is that he's not annoyed with our weaknesses. He is not annoyed by our weaknesses. You know, throughout our many studies on prayer, I was thinking about this earlier in the week. We've been talking about prayer since last September, every single Sunday since last September. We talk about prayer a lot. And and many times, as we have been talking together about prayer, you've heard me say that the most common reason, the most frequent reason people pray is because they're in trouble, right? Non-believers pray when they're in trouble. In fact, I think, Lord, help may be the two most frequently used words in everybody's prayer vocabulary because we always need his help. And, And we're always confronted with things that we don't understand or can't resolve. And, and you know Based on the way that most of us probably feel when we're dealing with the needy people in our lives, and by needy I don't mean poor, I mean the people who ought to be able to do things for themselves but keep telling us to do it for them, needy people, right? You would think, based on the way we deal with and respond to that kind of needy people, that God would constantly be annoyed with us, right? Because we're always asking him to fix stuff and and to solve stuff and to answer stuff. And we're saying, Lord, help. We th- I, you just have to think, he would be, if he's like us, annoyed with how much of our praying is taken up with asking him to solve problems. Oh, we'd be wrong. We'd be wrong to think that. Because this psalm says he's not annoyed with our weaknesses. Look at verses 13 through 16. Just as a father, here it is, has compassion. When you go home today, go back through this psalm and look at how many times the word compassion appears in it. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. And when the wind is passed over, it is no more. In other words, we come and go quick. We don't last long. And its place 
acknowledges it no longer. What's the message? He knows we're weak. He designed us. (laughs) He made us. He knows how we're wired. He knows how we're built. He knows what we can handle, and he knows what we can't. What I think we're being told here is that rather than hiding behind his throne every time he hears us coming, oh, not again, he welcomes us into his presence. Bring it to me, he says, bring it, as a father has compassion, not pity. Pity is, I feel really sorry that you're stuck in that jam. Compassion says, I see the jam you're in, and I'm coming to do something about it. A father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Do you know him? Have you trusted him? So then as a father has compassion on his children, our heavenly father has compassion on me and on you. That's the God we pray to. That's the one to whom we pray. He more than meets all of our needs. He deals with us on the terms of grace. He is not annoyed, this psalm says, with our weaknesses. And fourth and finally, verses 19 through 22, he has it all under control. The God we pray to is the God who has everything under control. And you know, if there's one truth that can take what we've seen here so far in this psalm to to a whole new, whole better level, that's it. That would be the one that the God who, when we pray, meets our needs more than meets them, deals with us in grace, has compassion on our weakness. How much better can you get than if that God who deals with us and treats us and feels that way about it is also the one who, according to verse 19, has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. How about that? That's pretty good stuff, don't you agree? Three of you agree. Very good. The rest of them will catch up shortly. It's good stuff. Say amen. Thank you. That's right. You know, in the town hall, maybe some of you have been there in Copenhagen, Denmark, is the world, they say, what is the world's most complicated and intricate clock. I love clocks. I don't know how they work. I don't know much about them, but I love looking at them and studying them. And in Copenhagen, Denmark, in the town hall, and these pictures don't nearly do it justice. There's sort of the front and the back view but there's a clock in Copenhagen, Denmark. It took 40 years to build. It, uh, it cost back in the first half of the 20th century when it was made in those days, dollars over a million dollars to create, to construct, and to complete. And, and among other things, it's a clock. It has 10 faces. It has 15,000 moving parts in it. And not only does it calculate, and I realize computers can do this stuff now, this is way cooler than that. It not only calculates the time of day, it gives you the day of the week, the month of the year, the year that you're in, and it also calculates the movements of all the planets in our galaxy. It is prepared to do so for the next 2,500 years. In fact, there are actually parts in this clock, they aren't even designed to move for 24 more centuries. That's complicated. That's intricate. That's phenomenal. You know what the interesting thing about this clock is? It's not accurate. (laughs) Say, how inaccurate? Loses two-fifths of a second every 300 years. (laughs) Two-fifths of a second every 300 years. You say, well, that's pretty close, and you're right. What if that was God? What if he was mostly reliable? What if he only slipped up every two or three hundred years? What if every once in a while one of those prayers slid right by? Listen, don't try to tell me that some of you here this morning, and I would probably count myself among you, are not convinced it's your prayer that he would miss every single time, right? There's accurate, and then there's perfection. Perfection. 
There's mostly control, then there's absolute control. And the Bible says our God is in absolute, absolute control. And we need to know that because all it really takes, and we've all been there, but I would have to think, all it takes is a tiny sliver of question and of doubt to convince us that praying isn't worth it at all. Because every once in a while, he's got to miss one every once in a while. Surely he's not always listening to me. But Psalm 103, again, begs to differ. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. R.C. Sproul famously once said, there is not one maverick molecule in the entire universe. Not one. Not one. And when you know that, when you understand that that is what the Bible says about the one to whom we pray, then you are able, as both the beginning of this psalm says, as well as the end, to bless the Lord, O your soul, and all that is within you. All of it is within you. You can bless his holy name because you have the assurance that the one to whom you pray not only hears you, knows you, cares so much about you, but that he's going to handle whatever you bring him. One way or another, he's going to take care of it. He has it all under control. Sweet. Pull this together this morning. I want you just to think about something for a minute. I want you to think just kind of the way God has wired you. How do you respond? What's your sort of primary instinct toward those in your life who are in authority over you? I think the spectrum runs one of two directions. There are those of us who, when it comes to authority, we're talking about a parent, a principal, a police officer. (laughs) There are those of us who are inclined to just toe the line, don't make waves. Just do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And then there are those who, when it comes to authority, want to push back hard against it, right? We all have sort of our own little arrangement with authority. How do we respond to the authority that's over us in our lives? And I ask the question because I I think that probably, and this is just my hunch, I might be wrong, but that even under the best of conditions, we're probably never totally free from wondering whether those in authority of us really have our best interests at heart. Whether they're smiling to us in one moment and putting the knife in our back in the other. When they're treating us with kindness and compassion, or so it seems, but really they're just using us to their own advantage and to their own purposes. We wonder sometimes whether those in authority are not for us, they are against us, and might be seeking to do us harm. But, but, when it comes to the God to whom we pray, when it comes to the God to whom we as Christians pray, Psalm 103 could not be any clearer because its message and the big idea of everything we've looked at here in it this morning is simply this. You are never more secure, never, than when you were seeking the Lord. You're never more secure, never, than when you're seeking Him, seeking His face, seeking His hand, seeking Him in prayer. Why? Because he's going to meet all your needs. He knows your needs. He's going to more than meet them. He's going to deal with you on the terms of not anger, but of grace. He's going to never be annoyed, irritated with your weaknesses. In fact, he says, just bring it back to me again and again. And he has it under control. He does. I can't tell you how necessarily. I don't know what he's going to do. But I do know on the authority of this psalm that he is faithful. Father, help us to trust in that faithfulness, that you are a faithful God today. 
Father, we come into a place to an hour like this. We come from all sorts of circumstances. We come with all sorts of needs. Father, in truth be told, many times we come with all sorts of suspicions as well. Is God really there? Does he care about me? Is he angry at me? Is he ashamed of me? Did he love me once, but, but now that I've gone astray, he just doesn't feel the same way about me anymore? Is it really worth it to seek him one more time? Father, I pray that not what I have said, but what your word says has washed away the lies and the illusions, or at least that it's beginning to break them down, so that as believers, we can approach you in the truth, the knowledge of who you are, of what you're like, and not just how good you are, but how awesome you are, and how mighty you are, and yet how much you care for us. Lord, as always, we pray that you take the things of truth spoken here this morning and seal them to our hearts. Take the things of the flesh and cause them to be forgotten so that we leave treasuring only Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.